0: Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants, and they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. women and men. Hello, this is episode ninety-three of the Boys in Short Pants, the ninety-fourth episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau I'm Edson Rainbow, and uh, we are following up today with uh, it's a lot of. Once again, we're moving back into things happening time, uh, and it's a very busy, busy summer. Much more so. that uh, Ottawa in summer is usually quite quite a sleepy town, but there's a lot going on these days. Yes, I mean, this isn't your average year, I would say. Um, yes. Yeah, so we,
1: we, we not only have Parliament sitting bi-weekly during July and August, but there is... It's
0: just four total sitting days. That's what I said. You said bi-weekly. Every, Every other week. It's, it's twice a month, whatever. Okay. Uh, months are a little more
1: than four <laughs> weeks. <laughs> get, get out of here with that. All right. Um, yes, twice a month, if you'd prefer it be structured that way. Indeed. Um, bi-weekly, as well as, you know, the government has just had its fall, no, not its fall <laughs> economic statement. <laughs> it's summer fiscal snapshot. Summer fiscal Instagram snapshot. Instagram ready. Yes. Um, that it released on Wednesday, and we're now Thursday, so yesterday, mm-hmm. um, that revealed a number of things about the government's finances, sort of a more of a backwards looking snapshot than a forward looking snapshot in many yes. ways.
0: In fact one would say the snapshot is actually just at one point in time.
1: But it included both projections and <laughs> that about their spending yes. back. Though the
0: projections are pretty short-term uh, as far as these things go. Yeah, but there yes. wasn't
1: much that went out beyond next year. No. Like 2021 on no. a few different indicators. It really was a business summary.
0: But we didn't come here to talk about the fiscal snapshot, which I, I, I think it kind of How is up. that not on our agenda is really my question. Because there's just not much in it. I mean, if we want to talk really briefly about it, it's like I think the, the big headline figure is obviously the $343 billion deficit. I think the, the more important headline figures that debt service charges are actually lower than what they were last this, year. This is the government narrative. This is yeah, the, the, but I think the that, new fiscal
1: anchor is well,
0: the I don't,
1: uh, debt to, I
0: can't remember how they phrase it, well, debt to
1: GDP to servicing ratio or something along those lines. Ah,
0: okay. Well, I mean, yes, the, the speed at which they change the, uh, you know, their anchor is is sort of belies the term anchor. I think you get an anchor like a pair of brakes. You expect it to take like
1: 80, 000, five years, eighty thousand kilometers. You throw it in, take it, is. it out.
0: Throw it in, take it out.
1: No, but but really, I mean the it's the really bot- just solid steel. I, I don't know why you need to replace your anchor. That <laughs> the often.
0: bottom line, like threat of debt, is fundamentally unsustainable. Uh, service costs, right? Like that, the idea that interest would become interest rates would become really high, and that it would actually cut into the real ability of the government in terms of like the actual productive resources of the economy commercial towards things it wants to do whether that's healthcare education at the provincial level sure. various other things so you want to avoid a situation where you're you have a, you're facing real resource constraints or like real inflation constraints I guess that, that's really what that is um, so you want to avoid having really high debt service charges as a portion of your economy because it's not really Spending is productive in any way. Um, the fact is that they're extremely low because interest rates are low, and they're doing a lot of long-term borrowing uh, at super low rates, so it's locked in.
1: Yes, they, they, in in the FES, they talk about their yeah. strategy for locking in yes. long-term. Which is smart. Interest I mean, like, rates are long-term yeah. by... Moving their bond mix yeah. to ten and thirty-year bonds
0: exactly, which is smart. And like investors right now are looking for safe investments, and yeah. they see Canadian public the, debt as a safe investment. The Bank of Canada has also purchased some bonds, I believe, uh, both federally and provincially, and that's why Newfoundland didn't go bankrupt. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I do think that they're fundamentally like correct about that. I I do like that even the Conservatives have to kind of back off on the apocalyptic rhetoric about the the debt. They sort well. I sh- they sort of said, oh, we're at the, the trillion dollar mark in terms of total stock of debt, which obviously is kind of a meaningless indicator, even though it's a big number.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, no number objectively is yeah. more meaningful than any others, but it yes. is sort of a, a psychological number sure. of being a, tri- it's big. A, a trillion dollars I, I do debt. think
0: people have done themselves a, a disservice by having million, billion, and trillion all sound so similar because they really are astronomically different numbers but they because they sound so similar you think big bigger even bigger and it's like not actually very helpful in terms of magnitudes but there you go um i did like that really the main talking point coming out of it was the the worst unemployment rate in the g7 which is like technically true for the month of may because the u.s was 0.01 percent better uh or sorry 0.1 percent better um which I think anyone looking at the situation in the U.S. right now would think that's probably not because they've handled the crisis particularly well and are, are roaring back. Okay. It's because they reopened too early and uh, so, so are now eating shit. Second worst. Yes. Unemployment in the G7. Yeah, and then, like I, I'd be the first to say, and I, listeners of this very program will know that I, I've said it early and often, the government has not managed the crisis particularly well. Um no. no, and I, I think if if you're going to have, I mean, if if
1: there is a lesson you take away from all of this, um, I think, and I think it's really that it sort of goes back to the uh, the original sin here, and the original sin was perhaps the health management of it on the front end. Yeah, and and perhaps a lot of countries fell victim to the same original sin.
0: Yeah, and there was a so lot a fin- lot
1: of finding a comparator that did remarkably better yeah. in sort of a, a western european context is difficult because that's who we tend to compare ourselves yes. against and
0: it's fair to say also in the western european context that they had less lead time a, right? a north, a north that, american a or western european yeah and they also didn't
1: have sars though and so yeah. the, these are sort of our pre-existing conditions that should have led us to yes um react much quicker than we did resulting in less economic damages i think cetera, it's fair cetera, to say that
0: we had a much less than optimal response and a about average to slightly worse response because especially about like siloing issues with data that really kept public health from being super effective in the early stages of the crisis sure um i would say like our fiscal policy response was pretty good like i don't have a ton of issues with a fiscal policy yeah. response i have quibbles well yeah uh, but Broadly, that was not why? really the well, big issue. Why
1: did seniors generally get so much money? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> but like, I mean, I would say my my gripe about the fiscal policy is why weren't we more ready to use it? Right? Like, I think we could have looked at what Italy was doing in terms of a big lockdown and think, okay, well, if we had to go into lockdown, how would we manage it? That sort of thought exercising didn't really seem to happen, as far as I know. I, I actually have a bunch of uh, access information requests about this, sure. uh, but we'll see what happens if I ever get them. Um, but yeah, not to harp on this too much because we've talked about it in previous episodes. But all that to say, the snapshot, um, my, my takeaway is fiscal position is pretty good. Like, I, I don't have any big concerns. I, don't, I think you're a bit of a fool or you believe your own bullshit a bit too much if you think there are huge reasons to be concerned right now. I think the they're, they're, they're like medium-term necessity is a plan for a recovery. Yeah, and then, like we're the, getting there now, where they need to start showing their homework on this.
1: I think the government wants to do this in September. I think they're waiting basically until September. Yeah, and, September. and, and
0: fine, like, they're probably working on details. They're probably like, I imagine working on how they're going to structure but, the recovery. But there are some really- other
1: countries, and for sort of the the business certainty of the entire thing, other yeah. countries are substantially more. Yep. Uh, yeah.
0: And here, administrative capacity and federalism are like. Real issues compared to, like, the Nordic countries, compared to even, like, France and Germany. We don't have their sort of uh, fiscal capacity. German federalism is very, very different, a lot more cooperative than Canadian federalism. On the mm-hmm. whole, I'm sure someone can find an example. It's hard to, to be less country. cooperative than Canadian Exactly. Federalism. So I, I think, like, there that makes things a lot easier. Like, if you look at, for instance, the early kind of responses that Alberta and Ontario have taken, um, I think you'd find a lot of people to say that the, like, very construction-heavy focus that they're putting in on their recovery plan is not really a good idea, because that's not actually the parts of the economy that were hit hard by the COVID shutdowns at all. And also that it doesn't really do anything to address things like the need for childcare and to address the gendered impacts of the the actual shutdowns, which hit women a lot harder than it hit men, who are, of course, like overwhelmingly in construction compared to women. So it's a bit of a weird strategy, if you ask me, and that's not the approach I would have taken. But it leaves the federal government kind of having to offset that Uh, and I guess they're going to want to see where provinces like Quebec and BC go as well
1: yeah i think going forward there's a lot of questions like and as you noted one of the biggest ones is child care
0: yeah well that's huge right because no fe- one's gonna be able to go back to work if there's some child care
1: the federal government hasn't anteed up really on child care during this entire process yeah well what they, um, they, what
0: they would say is that they have 14 billion dollars on the table that includes child care among many other priorities yeah there, there, that they would a, love to give the provinces
1: there's a list of 10 billion dollars that's or sorry, there's a list of 10 priorities enumerated for that $14 billion in the fiscal and economic Which is snapshot. a lot of priorities for every province. Yeah. Uh, and f- so if you just portion that out, call it a billion dollars a province plus territories, roughly... Yeah. Um. Obviously, it's not going to be allocated in exactly that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, Ontario gets the same um, as Nunavut. And just, but all of those over not? ten priority areas yeah.
1: becomes oof not very much. Not at all. much money.
0: No, no, no. And that's entirely uh, a lot fair. of
1: a lot of bread, not very much butter.
0: Yes, I, I think that's that's entirely fair. Um, but yes, I don't think we we'd actually not intended to talk about the <laughs> economic snapshot at all. We just kind of got sucked into it. So I think we'll we'll cut off there uh, for that particular discussion and and go into what we uh, initially want to talk about. Which, um, we sort of cut off promising last episode, was talking about, uh, policing. Sure. Um,
1: I mean, the context when we... I mean, the, the context in Canada, I think, has changed a fair bit over the past two weeks, or whenever it's been since we last recorded. Yeah. Or from the moment that, uh, Justin Trudeau went out to the protests in Ottawa and sort of kneeled down in the crowd, surrounded by his pro- close protective detail, and, uh... I guess that that was it. Um, I mean, it's sort of... I I, I don't know how much the pressure has mounted in Canada uh, for drastic action around uh, Black Lives Matter, some of of the sort of policy uh, points that that movement is calling for. Uh, In the United States, I mean, it has changed over time, but there are still a lot of areas where... The protests in the streets, the unrest, are still very live. Yeah. Canada, I mean, it's somewhat understandably, we're sort of one step removed from the sort of the jumping off point for a lot of this. Um, it seemed to be more of a blip, which is not to say that the underlying issues that led to the protests in Canada are not still there, but sort of the concerted public pressure on the government has obviously substantially diminished in yeah. the subsequent well, and two weeks
0: i would give this to what the liberals are able to do on a lot of issues which is hug something to death yeah right? like their, their approach with fires is is not to to spray gasoline at it which is what the american administration really <laughs> frequently likes to do with divisive culture war issues uh, among others but to, to simply take a big comforting blanket and just smother it until it stops. We hear burning. you. We see you. Yeah. We feel. Well, that's you. exactly we love you. that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Um, and it is really effective. Like they've done this on any number of issues, um, and like sort of connoisseurs of the the Trudeau Liberal playbook know it very well. But. I think it's proven quite effective in that they've basically said like yes we hear you yes you are heard you're valid you matter and then they don't really do a lot they say oh we're gonna which, review things and w- like- which is
1: why some stakeholders say they almost preferred the Harper approach to a lot of things even on issues where you wouldn't expect uh, stakeholders just because they knew where they stood yeah um, with the Harper government like if you go in and you get like a yes we'll do that or no get lost as opposed to a we hear we you. hear you. <laughs> We we went in 10 times. They just keep saying that. We have no idea what's going on. Um, Seems to be the government's approach to things. I think if we're to peel back sort of the policy onion a little bit, the first thing they sort of moved on, if you will, was body cams, which seems to be.
0: Immediately, kind of like, I think they noticed very quickly that there was actually, it's not actually a very popular idea that has a lot of problems. And they're like, ooh, okay. Hmm.
1: Yeah, but I think it's also pretty clear that the government is not really in or in a fast policy making mindset right now, particularly on social policy. I think it will come up. I I don't think Trudeau has forgotten the moment. Um, And I think he's certainly a man who lives for moments like this. Sure. Yes. Um. So when the government reboots in September, I would expect to see social policy. Yeah, he, he did a say a more significant portion of the liberal agenda than I think we would have otherwise seen.
0: Yeah, he he did note in his press conference yesterday that um the Minister of Justice and Attorney General David Lamedi, Frank Frank Lamedi. <laughs> is looking at um, sort of legal reforms. I forgot exactly what he said. but Apologies. Uh, that Bill Blair would be looking at use of force reforms, which of course is, is a bitter irony, uh, given Bill Blair's track record uh, on rem- police use remind of Remind us
1: very quickly for those unfamiliar with uh, Toronto former police chiefs.
0: So just leaving aside the whole carting issue, which is a very big one and a big part of Bill Blair's legacy. Um, he also was the police chief during the uh, G20 protests in 2010, I guess, because the 10th anniversary just came and went. Um, where basically a lot of people got just the absolute shit kicked out of them by uh, by Toronto police officers. Uh, yes, along
1: with sort of opening our detention and many other things. Oh,
0: yeah, kettling and all this stuff. It was all very good. <clears throat> um,
1: so where does that take us? Um, so, so far the government has said, we hear you, we see you, we're going to put body cameras on, cops.
0: Which they haven't actually repeated, like, since. No, that's sort of fallen <laughs> off. I think pretty... Yeah.
1: I mean, even coming out of it with that announcement was a little, uh, let's say, dumb. Yes. Um, Because if you actually listen to what activists were saying, it was not body cameras. Well, because there were many instances, the George Floyd one, perhaps most notably, um, were heavily recorded and still not resulting in the sort of consequences or justice that people were looking for. Yes. Um, So the direct linkage to body cameras isn't necessarily there.
0: Yes so and and often you know i in the u.s where they do have body cameras in in many places like w- what happens is either like they mysteriously turn off when police yeah. brutality happens uh, for some reason or they're kind of just used to expand what is already fairly pervasive surveillance that i i don't think we need more of sure and
1: and yeah there are a number of other policy issues associated with cameras.
0: The storage, the cost. All of all of these things, Official right? Official languages compliance <laughs> with the, the archives. That's not a real issue, but it might be, actually. Who knows? <laughs> um,
1: so body cameras was sort of put out as the, uh, the table stakes there and sort of quickly forgotten about. Yes. Um, which then led us into sort of a conversation of does systemic racism exist in... Canada or more specifically Canada I think we've come to. More, more specifically within the RCMP which led to sort of um, the awkward moment for the government where police commissioner Brenda Lucky said no and then
0: yes and um, then later that well, the the long jump is a very good example of systemic yes. racism I think this is where you should roll that tape I, I will roll that tape yes there's absolutely systemic racism I can give you a couple of examples that we've uh, found over the years. Uh, For example, um, we have a physical abilities requirement evaluation. It's an obstacle course. Um, In there, um, there's a six-foot mat that you have to do a broad jump. And when we put uh, the uh, lens on it and reviewed that physical requirements test, um, evidence told us that the average person can broad jump their height, so of course, how many six-foot people do we hire? And there are people in all different cultures that may not be six feet, including, um, there's not a lot of women that are six feet tall, um, that would not be able to get through that ex- that type of test. Okay, the tape has now been rolled.
1: Yeah, I was- I was just waiting for
0: a- Well, I- I will splice oh, it. that will okay. be fine. Yeah, you're, don't worry. We're not gonna give her a full- yeah, it's okay. Technology is amazing these you're, days. You're
1: going to delete this section? No, too. not a bit. We're going to okay, keep
0: okay. going. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sometimes I doubt
1: your, your commitment to splicing in audio clips.
0: I used to do it a lot more. We used to have uh, <laughs> Bernie Sanders going millionaires like whenever that came up. It was, wasn't bad. A lot more work, though. Um, so, anyway. What we, you, we were still in school again, in fairness. Yeah. We had more time. What you hear in
1: the clip is uh, Commissioner Lucky um, offering her take on systemic racism in uh, the RCMP and she actually sort of volunteers it in a way that's really unprompted and doesn't really fit well with the response that she gives
0: yes and
1: so not to psychologize it too much um, but I really doubt that that was the answer that her staff prepared her on Um, it's it's not really about systemic racism it sounds like it was a GBA analysis yes I mean gender inequities in the the par
0: um, just the standing jump that is part of the RCMP sort of like evaluation f- physical, physical abilities. Evaluation.
1: Yes. Um. So really awkward response to Greg Fergus. Yes. So it doesn't look good.
0: No, I mean, you'd think at some point in the intervening, like two, three weeks before that meeting, that someone would have like, I the RCMP presumably is cons people, someone would have taken her aside, been like, okay, what are you going to say if? Someone asks you at this committee meeting, do you think systemic racism is a problem?
1: So this is, to me, also a failure of Bill Blair's office, because it is well within the realm of his office to interrogate his deputies or, I mean, the commissioner is effectively a deputy minister. Um. Although the relationship isn't exactly the same. No, it's a little, yeah. Um, but we sat around the table with the heads of the RCMP. This is, of the, course, when you were in the public safety yes, of minister's office. just CSIS, CBSA, whoever it was, before going to committee on C-51 or some of these other bills. And you do the hard questions and you just say, like, you pretend to be an MP and you say... Baha, here here's the gotcha questions. How are you gonna respond? So
0: basically, you're you're coaching independent civil servants to give partisan answers. Not at all. It just <laughs> that, was, that was a clear yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. voice, yeah. No, you're just having you
1: know preparing them in basic the, on, on the political side of yeah. things. Basic right?
0: stress test of like, can you get through this? Because all of this reflects back. Because it's not your their minister. environment, right? Like, and you're right. Like that's exactly it. Is that ultimately? everything Brenda lucky says there reflects on Bill Blair, reflects on Justin Trudeau. And it's like, you need people who, like, this is... The reality is that we have a, you know, responsible government that is responsible to the legislature, which includes opposition members, and you need to be able to give good answers to people who, you know, are masters of the public purse, who, you know, are masters of, of the legislative process. You need to be able to give them satisfactory answers, and sort of, like, heavy bureaucratic speak is not... The language they speak and it's not the language canadians speak and like public officials need to be equipped to deal with the realities beyond the sort of obsidian tower of government i guess it's the opposite of academia sure yeah so brenda lucky um
1: was not the choice i would have made um if only because i would have chosen for RCB commissioner yes for R C B commissioner I would have chosen someone external to the organization, although there have there has previously been an external commissioner um, who I wouldn't say proved to be a great reformer. But I do think that's what's needed to shake up and sort of transform the RCMP uh, alongside political will to transform the RCMP. Yeah.
0: So what would you say are like the big. So first of all, I guess, what's the job that the RCMP has and what do you think are the its shortcomings in doing that job?
1: Okay, so the first thing anyone needs to know about the RCMP is broadly it's split into two categories, uh, what's called contract policing and federal policing. Contract policing is where the RCMP plays B-COP across all of the provinces, well, in, in various provinces and municipalities. Um, in British Columbia, for instance, sort of the general police that you'll find in smaller communities. Are RCMP officers? Yeah, same with maritime. In larger communities like Vancouver, you have VPD. Um, but if you go into Alberta, uh, again, all of your small towns are pleased by RCMP. Not for much
0: longer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that actually, one of one of the great points in that is removing Alberta from RCMP contract policing. Um, and then, so you have some provinces where there is virtually no RCMP, um, namely Ontario. I mean, principally, if not exclusively. Ontario, Quebec, and New uh, Newfoundland yeah, um, who each respectively have their provincial police forces, um, and so that so there's an Indigenous policing side, which is really different. But yeah. we're we're going to leave that aside yeah. because that's not really
0: um, in the same wheelhouse and significance as the in other ones. Very quickly sure. on that, it's just that Indigenous policing uh, is often it's basically treated like as a program, where others are treated as like essential services. So they have like much smaller budgets for one because they're basically allocation based instead of like needs based or like operations like actual expenses based so they're often like dramatically underfunded and a lot of indigenous communities really do want to do their own policing so like Nishnawbe eski nation police service uh is like one of the really big success stories in indigenous policing and they are just on a total total shoestring so, for people unaware of them, they cover, like, large swaths of Northern Ontario. So, it's really, like, one of the larger uh, Indigenous policing jurisdictions in the country. But, yeah, it's, like, the the, the resources just are not there compared to uh, non-Indigenous uh, policing sure. resources. Very different kettle of fish yeah, just than, that.
1: than the RCMP yes. sort of two mid camps. Um, so contract policing is the RCMP that most people are familiar with. Yeah, Boiled down to the end of the day. It's They're the, the RCMP, RCMP who are giving you speeding tickets. Yeah. They're catching the shoplifter. They are coming to investigate the murder. Whatever it is. They're yeah. sort of the general point of contact with the RCMP that people are familiar with. Um, and then the other side of it is uh, federal policing. So federal policing is um, the protection for the prime minister and other yeah. VIPs. Um often international diplomats, etc. It is money laundering, it is terrorism, it is white-collar crime, things along those lines. It's the stuff
0: you you would expect in the US that the FBI would do, uh, but the FBI doesn't have the Other side of it where they do, they don't do contract FBI police. is yeah. not giving you, parking you're, not, get, you're tickets. not, yeah, exactly. You're not, if you're getting a parking ticket from the FBI, you've got bigger worries than the parking ticket. So, the comparison with the American
1: experience is interesting because the FBI, again, sort of does the comparable federal policing yes. work. But they don't do the national police force work, right? Where a lot of European countries, Italy, for instance, do have sort of these national federal police forces, the Carabinieri. Carabinieri, yay! (laughs) And And others in France too. Yes. Um, But what, where it really doesn't work in Canada, is the RCMP has for quite a long time had a really big problem. Sort of similar to the armed forces. Yeah. Well, it's a
0: very similar
1: recruiting people. Yeah. Um, And of course, this hasn't been helped by the RCMP's reputation, all of the different um, sexual assault, employment issues that they've had. Once again, much like 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 the military. Yeah. Very, (laughs) very comparable to the military. Although the military seems to be able to. Well, and they're addressing it. Address it substantially better. Yeah. Um, but so fundamentally, you have an RCMP that is unable to recruit people there is a need or there's been a pressure to increase rcmp numbers at the community levels yeah and what this leads to is an rcmp that's pushing people or trying to push people into areas where there's voids in policing yeah but really neglecting federal policing yes federal policing becomes an absolute afterthought yeah um because it's not as pressing investigations are more complicated they're more specialized yeah and this is sort of my fundamental problem. Well, it's one of the fundamental problems, let's say, with how the RCMP exists today. Is that having this dual mandate means that you're either doing both poorly or one well and one poorly. They've never excelled at doing both of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's sort of where we're at.
0: Yeah. And the federal policing stuff, it really like, is worth really reiterating that like, white collar, money laundering, terrorism investigations are really 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 complicated and difficult and very much their own kettle of fish on their own and like just to, to specify exactly what he's talking about when he's talking about the, the sort of um, military-like recruitment issue is that the military has a principle called universality of service which is basically that every member of canadian armed forces basically should be physically capable uh of doing the job of a rifleman that's kind of the idea Um, The RCMP has a similar thing where if you join the RCMP and let's say you're, you know, you've done tons of like, let's just take terrorism an example. Let's say you're like the biggest expert on like Dagestani uh, (laughs) Islamists who, like whatever, right? Like doesn't matter. Uh, But what you're going to do in reality for your first decade of your career in the RCMP is you're going to be giving uh, speeding tickets to people in Velociraptor, Saskatchewan. Right, like that's just like. So yeah, it's
1: what you do is you say I am a forensic accountant. I want to join the RCMP. I want to work on white collar crime yeah, or like... organized crime or one of these areas. And they say that's super cool. <laughs> you have to go to Depot. Yeah. Or Depot.
0: They do call it Depot. Which yes. is very strange. You
1: go to Depot in Regina. And then you do a couple of months of basic training and then they ship you off to...
0: Velociraptors, Saskatchewan.
1: Uh, Velociraptor, Saskatchewan. It can be on the hill. Um, I, I don't know if it's There's always the case, like eight cars just like... There, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> trainees on the hill often. Um, or often it's to rural or remote communities, right? Yeah. Um, and the reality of this is you never know if you're go- going to get into that federal policing that you want to get into. So the risk of having to go work wherever is... You know, doesn't incentivize you, someone with a PhD in accounting or whatever it is, to get into federal policing or to ever make it into federal policing. Yeah, um, because you you generally opt out initially. For- as soon because as you look at you the process. you don't want to give parking
0: tickets. Like, people <laughs> want
1: to be FBI agents. Yeah. People with high levels of education and skill want to be FBI agents and want to do federal policing in the United States. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's public service. Interesting work. It's whatever. interesting work. Yeah. It's, you know, all of these things. But the federal police... There is no federal policing stream at, the, at depot. Yeah. Right?
0: Which is genuinely, when you think about it, just like, it's absurd. It,
1: it, it is really poorly structured and it's one of the things that's come up time and time again in every single review um, virtually of the RCMP and suggestions for reform is always you know splitting these in some way Um, and then generally provinces so there's an upside and a downside to contract policing the upside to contract policing is that the federal government actually pays for some of it yeah the federal government's on the hook for I think it's a little under 25 percent of uh, the cost which I think provinces appreciate Um, Whereas provinces just, I I don't know that the federal government pitches in for the SQ or the uh, OPP. Not that I know of. Um, And the downside of it is they don't really have much control over recruitment or over over force numbers. Right. I'll give you an example of this. (laughs) Surrey asked for 100 police officers, 100 RCMP officers, because they were experiencing a gang-related crime wave. And the RCMP was let's say slow to respond um, or slower than the Surrey community would have liked in terms of deploying those officers because the RCMP had a shortage. Um, the RCMPs has shortages and so they had to figure out where they're going to draw officers from, how, how they're able to resource that 100 officer request. So if you were a normal community who had your own police force, you would just be able to raise wages, recruit people your own way, et cetera. You're not reliant on a right. Ottawa-based organization to, or, I mean, there are provincial detachments as well, but to feed you officers. Mm-hmm. So it can be a very mixed experience. Well, but and- all, all of that is to say, the way contract and federal policing right now is working untenable, and it is a huge disservice both to, I think, contract policing suffers. I think the RCMP are not necessarily best equipped to interface with the communities in which they're stationed, um, as well as federal policing, where the RCMP has, I think, generally a pretty abysmal record on areas like terrorism, organized crime, white collar, etc.,
0: Worth saying also, in the example of Surrey, that they are actually in the process of creating their own municipal police department now, which is proving very, very expensive, but they seem to feel the need that this is a a worthwhile step for them.
1: Yeah, and as you alluded to, in the uh, sort of Alberta's Modern Firewall, one of the recommendations was to create an Alberta police force, which I wholeheartedly endorse.
0: Yeah, I think they will dress them up exactly like the Texas Rangers, and it will be probably a gong show, but uh,
1: still... So let, let's talk about some other elements of sort of the okay. modern RCMP in Canada. Um, if, if you listen to Planet Money or uh, The Indicator recently, you would note uh, Rob Gillizot, uh, University of
0: Victoria economist. Yeah, and former uh, um, economist to of the official opposition. When, yes. Uh,
1: so uh, an NDP there. economist who's been on both of those shows to talk about his study on unionization Please, police. I think it's principally across the United States. Yeah. Um, but... One of the things that hasn't really come out in media coverage at all has been that the RCMP is really in the, well, I mean, it has unionized. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a 20, say 2015, 2016 uh, Supreme Court decision that the Harper government had fought mm-hmm. um, where the RCMP won the right to unionize. The Supreme Court, I think it was a six to one decision, did not say that the RCMP needed to unionize or any such strong thing, but said that they were entitled to unionize and that the existing sort of labor management, I had a name, I can't remember, um, system was, you know, they were allowed to seek other representation. Um, So that resulted in the National Police Federation, I I believe it's called. Yeah, I think so. um, Which now represents the RCMP in ongoing and active negotiations with the federal government. Um, It's notable that the RCMP is generally one of the lesser paid policing forces in Canada. I think Mm -hmm. they're actually among the lowest paid, um, which also doesn't help with their sort of recruiting. Um, But the conversation around pay for policing has been a very active one at the federal level with annual or biannual conferences entitled uh, The Economics of Policing, where Public Safety Canada tries to lead a discussion on how to reduce or on how to manage training and yeah. reduce costs for policing,
0: and then the and, Halifax and Winnipeg police departments show up and say we have a tank, and, <laughs> and, and you can
1: find those reports online where they're very candid. Dis- I mean, they're not candid discussions, but they're the DG of community policing or whatever at public safety is talking about like. You know, crime's been going down and police costs are up 40%. (laughs) What's going on here, folks? We're doing a great job. (laughs) And and this was under under the Harper government. This was at a conference opened by Julian Fantino, um, then by Blaney, and most recently by uh, Goodale, this trend of the economics of policing conferences have been ongoing. So this is just a little bit behind the scenes of some of the perhaps federal policing conversations that people are not aware of. Which takes us to where you are on defund slash abolish the police and sort of the state of policing in Canada, if you want to give your take there.
0: Sure. I mean, I genuinely, as you say, we pay a lot of money to get very uncertain results. Um, I think, like, the last couple of weeks, we've obviously had a lot of really tragic deaths from, you know, wellness checks. We've had incidences of brutality. Like, I think the standard response of a society to a problem shouldn't necessarily be someone with a gun um, like I, I think there's a lot of scope to that. Like I don't necessarily think we need to abolish the guy with a gun period I think like maybe akin to the UK you have like two guys who have the guns or like five guys who have the guns and like they're kind of on standby in case there's a, a gun needing thing that comes up but like Typically, probably want less of them. Uh, probably want... I mean, frankly, it's like part of a wholesale look at a justice system where we just incarcerate far too many people.
1: So, um, ju- so. Just, just on the guy with the gunpoint, one,
0: one interesting tension just to
1: introduce there um,
0: was... This is the Justin Bork. This is the Justin yeah.
1: Bork. Following the monkey uh, shooting several years ago, um, the... I can't remember who it was. The RCMP were taken to court over providing adequate yeah um body armor and rifles yeah for their force um because the rcmp was in the process of rolling out carbines to officers which are you know larger arms. firearms yeah. that have greater stopping power shooting power whatever you yeah. will and are more accurate at range um and they lost the case um, and the they court basically yeah. deemed them negligent yeah. in terms of the rate of the rollout, and at the time, and it was it was sort of a really messy case. Yeah, I mean, and Commissioner Paulson at the time, so the the RCMP commissioner predating uh, Brenda Lucky, expressed during that case that he, you know, I, I don't know how much political political was not necessarily the right term, how much deliberateness he said, but. Uh, in terms of slowing down the rollout, but he expressed that one of the concerns he had with the rollout of these firearms was the perceived militarization yeah. of police. So it's yeah. sort of this irony where he was expressing concerns about the militarization of the police and the court basically said, You were under equipping your yeah. officers for the job that they should have. And been what I would say to that is to I do.
0: still think that like there, your average beat cop probably doesn't like maybe doesn't need to be armed i you know i'd be happy to look at the evidence either way on this and it's certainly not my field of specialty but like my inclination is to think we like not everyone needs to be armed all the time and i think if you had a dedicated you know like like real emergency response kind of thing where like this is like an active shooter situation because as we saw like even tragically a couple months ago in nova scotia like the rcmp doesn't (laughs) respond to these incidents well uh and it's i i was i lived 20 minutes from moncton when that happened um, and I remember that it was very uncertain and like, we were like, geez, they don't seem to have a very good handle on this. Like, um, yeah, it's scary. Uh, but at the same time, like the RCMP as it's currently constituted, doesn't really seem to be doing a good job of handling that.
1: Yeah, so to, to follow your line of logic, and I, I think it is a reasonable one, that you'd sort of see more specialized training for fewer individuals, although you'd have to do this in you know various communities across and virtually all communities across the country. Yeah. um, Maintaining, you know, 10, 20 people, whatever it is, depending on the size of the community, who are able to respond to these um, active shooter situations and such. Whereas the beat cop who is giving you a traffic
0: ticket perhaps doesn't need a fire. Yeah, and also, like, you give that person, like, a lot more, like, Training to, you know, yeah, yeah. do the kinds and of like DSLRs. By, 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 by virtue yeah. of striking this balance, and also you're to,
1: able to adjust the level of, yes. you know, the individual giving parking tickets perhaps doesn't need the gun or any of this yes. training, and those explicitly dedicated to it. Yeah, yeah
0: it's kind of an echo of the Universality Service thing here again, where like not everyone in the police service needs to do the exact same job. Um, and I think also, like, we probably just need to think hard about like, uh, do we want more, you know, cops feel that they're being called on to be social workers it's like well okay do we want more social workers in a sort of parallel kind of organization people say well that sounds very expensive and it's like well have you looked at the cost of policing recently <laughs> because it's also quite expensive as is incarceration so in, in my view I like in like I said I'm, I'm not an expert on this but my my gut feeling is that I think we could do as good or better a job with a lot fewer deaths and brutality and probably for less money. So I'm perhaps
1: offside with some of my uh, political peers on this, but I, I buy a lot of those arguments. Like, I've been stopped for traffic tickets a number of <laughs> you, times. The
0: Manitoba RCMP will forever,
1: <laughs> forever bear the grudge I'm not sure, $500. I'm not sure if it was RCMP or some sort of a highway sheriff. It wouldn't have had to be. No, there's sometimes highway sheriffs and. Okay that that sort of thing. Very good.
0: Um but any Manitoba Highway Sheriffs, please contact us. Or or for jaywalking or
1: for a, a few different things. All That was the
0: Edmonton Police Department though, was it?
1: That was yes. Edmonton Police Department. Jaywalking tickets. Who knew there were three hundred bucks <laughs> at Edmonton? <laughs> um where like in those instances, you do sort of have to reflect on them and be like, why was that person equipped with a firearm? Yeah. And like what does that say about like the encroachment of the state and the, the size of the state that we have agents of the state with firearms doing these things that could very well be done by meter maids, right? Or, yes. or something equip- like a modern equivalent of a meter maid. Yes. Like we don't, we're not of the view that meter maids who give parking tickets, like when your meter runs out should be armed. So why should the police officer stopping you for jaywalking or the police officer on the highway whose radar gun yeah you.
0: and i think what like, people would say is that like there are legitimate risks right but it's like it, it, that's true like you know it's not unheard of for for traffic stops to go really quite poorly and i think you've you know you've noted especially like sovereign citizen actually pullovers sure. can often go really bad and very violently um but at the same time it's like but as you as, know it, it's it's that's that's tough.
1: So my response to that is yes. And that's something you need to factor in and how you're going to respond to those situations. And if it's just like, you know, that the, the person responding yes. should get out of there and call someone who's more qualified to deal with it. Yeah. 100%. sometimes, well, and, and some sometimes you too, just have to walk away. Once yeah. I can finish this. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but in a lot of, we, we don't accept that premise for, like, nurses, right? Like...
0: Exactly. For yeah, a lot of other going.
1: workers. We don't accept that at Service Canada. Yeah. But at Service Canada... <laughs> you
0: never know who's going to walk in, right? Like, you have f- no more control than a police officer does over a traffic stop. In fact, you you have... The police officer has more control over the traffic stop than someone at Service Canada does.
1: Yes, or even, uh, to give you a, a relevant Ontario example, the LCBO. Yeah. Who is constantly being... Uh, cleaned out pillaged these (laughs) days Um, but there isn't a great call to arm you know LCBO officials yeah so I I think I think it is a moment in history where it's perhaps time for a rethinking of what responsibilities a police officer yeah who who is armed should be doing or a police officer period and if we want to make some spinoffs that are more specialized for the traffic radar person like can be
0: just simple bylaw yeah,
1: on our bylaw, I don't know if bylaw in Ottawa. Armed, I, but I, I don't. Yeah. I tend to think not.
0: I mean, it, one thing that's really important with all of this is that I think people lose a sense of the possible because we don't have a good sense of history. So, like, I think knowing how historically specific and contingent policing is in the Western world, in terms of like where it comes from socially and like what its historical origins are. Uh, especially in North America, like, I think people in North America are a little more conscious of like the fact that like the RCMP, for example, uh, like the Northwest, it refers to is is like you know refers to policing indigenous resistance movements uh, against and encroaching colonizing Canada. Um, obviously, Europe doesn't have exactly the same experience, but at the same time, they were running global empires where often you have you know people policing communities thousands of miles and many many cultures away from their zone of you know cultural competence and comfort george orwell famously was a uh, police officer in burma uh before that ceased to be a british colony in his early life um it's just like like they're institutions of social control that have come from a very historically specific trajectory uh based in industrial capitalism and colonialism and like i think if you start thinking like well okay if we were actually designing this like not with, like, dominating people in mind, like, what would that look like, right? And I think it's worth remembering that that is where that comes from. Uh, it's about population control of places where you don't have a lot of control. Let
1: me tie this back to the Rob Gillespie point that I brought up earlier, because I, I completely forgot to actually... Um,
0: I was wondering where you're going with that, yeah. yeah I, I forgot
1: <laughs> I forgot to take that anywhere. Um, was that Rob Gillespie study was about the downsides, uh, or what he expressed in it, was some of the downsides of unionization. In police. In policing. Because otherwise they're good. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'll, I'll have you comment after I close this for one or two minutes about why often left-wing organizations are sure. hawkish or, yeah, I'd, I'd say hawkish on police unions. Um, but his study was effectively that when RCMP or, sorry, not RCMP, when police forces go to the bargaining table and they are cease to be able to bargain over wage, they bargain over many other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time to get their story straight after a serious incident, the, their access to evidence, all of these other things that are not typically what you would think of as union bargaining territory and how those things result in perhaps more violence, less accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it is, I, I think, an area of common ground where, I mean, in Canada you saw uh, the Harper government fight RCMP unionization, where in the United States, the right wing political establishment is actually quite close with police unions, uh, Donald Trump uh, comes to mind. Yes. So there, there's a little bit of a different dynamic going on there right now. And typically in Canada and in the United States, the left wing, the Demo- well, less of the Democrats, let's just say the left wing, um, are opposed to unions writ large. And they don't see, or sorry, sorry, police <laughs> police unions writ large, as they don't see police unions as falling under the broader tent of the the House of Labor.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's actually exactly it, right? I think people on the left would say that, like the the problem with police unions is they don't organize you police as workers; they organize police as police, right? And that exactly as you say, a lot of the efforts of police unions. Go into sort of trying to shield uh, police from accountability through various things, as as you mentioned, like internal investigations. There was a case; I think it was actually the case of uh, the young woman in Toronto who uh, died falling uh, from a balcony, mm-hmm. uh, that the police officer uh, wasn't cooperating with, like the special investigations unit, and that was his right to do so. Which seems crazy. I mean, if the police come to your house, you don't really have the right to just be like, no, no, thanks. I'm not interested. Um, well, you, you know, if, if, if they you have, do, you, well, if, they, if they have you in connection with a serious crime and even then, it can, in fact, it, like, as people often say about know your rights kind of stuff, like, unless they decide otherwise, in which case there's not a lot you can do. Um, so yeah, that, that's really the critique is that it, it's not an organization that protects workers. It's an organization that protects police as police. Okay, uh, that that would be the critique. Let's let's leave that there. Sure. Uh,
1: because we're running out of time to talk about the the sizzle and the sauce. Yes. Um, which is the, I'd say a good two to three weeks of Wii wee headlines. Yes. Um, with the latest and perhaps the most significant one coming today, um, which is the story broken. You would by... say that's the most significant. Maybe we let's, okay, let's, let's, get, get, let's into get there. It. Let's work backwards. Um, broken by, tweeted by Canaland. <laughs> broken by the CBC, and then followed up by Canaland. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps all of this came about from, from Canaland's reporting, yes. and then Candeland got all moody about it. Um, but it is the revelation that the got um the we organization which i'm going to use to call both the foundation and the nonprofit.
0: so it's me for we and we me for we me too we. me too we. so me too we social enterprise is the for-profit branch of um the sort of house of Kielberger.
1: yeah i, I encourage you to price out the premium vacation packages on their website yeah, so, at fifteen thousand dollars a night yeah
0: so just to zoom out a little bit here once again and, and introduce some context uh in april uh the prime minister announced a sort in a suite of sort of a policy packaging to young people including the emergency student benefit uh the canada summer uh student student support Anyway, (laughs) CSSG, uh, which is basically aimed at providing compensation for volunteering uh, for young people.
1: Which is a policy issue in and of itself, but we won't get into that. Sure.
0: Um, Then they announced a little later that We Charity, which is the other half and the larger half of the House of Kielberger... which is, of course, I, by by that I mean I, re- I refer to Mark, the, and- the, yeah, Mark and Craig Kielberg are two brothers who founded Free the Children, which then became We Charity, and then they spun off Me Too We as a sort of for-profit arm uh, that is not the charity, but, you know, closely associated because they are run by the same people, allegedly. <laughs> uh, allegedly, uh, We's defamation lawyers are, are hawkish, so... Allegedly, everything is alleged. Alleged. Everything is alleged unless specifically indicated otherwise, <laughs> which it won't be. And everything is our personal opinions unless specifically indicated otherwise, which they won't be. Allegedly,
1: uh, so it was a, a nine hundred million dollar program to be administered. We found out mm, last month, or well,
0: they found out before that.
1: Well, they did, yes. But we we found <laughs> out last on month first.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that we
1: found out last month was to be administered and was really un. Substantial, uh, substantively underway yeah. was being administered by WE. Charity. Um, but the challenge there is that WE seems to do uh, some work in sort of the the global south, bringing water, education, etc. And they seem to do... That's maybe in the B tier of what they do. Um, the A tier of what they seem <laughs> to do is put on global...
0: Wee Multimedia
1: Wee Days to encourage youth volunteership yes. and wellness and, or something. And, and,
0: and in a bitter irony, uh, Sophie Grubar-Trudeau, who hosts a wellness podcast for uh, We, in fact, contracted the coronavirus at a Wee Day event in London. Uh, K-
1: kicking off Canada's coronavirus response.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it's a real full circle kind of situation here. Um, but th- that is actually, I mean... There's so the, many layers to this he, onion, isn't
1: it? Yes. And and this is sort of what is coming out is the number of ties between this liberal government and the reorganization are actually astonishing. They go back decades. Well, um, they go back decade. Well, sorry, a decade. <laughs> yes. um, Trudeau himself had like has done work with the Kielbergers. For basically, as long as he as long as he's been an MP,
0: a little before even a little
1: before, yeah. Uh, members of his inner circle are associated with the Kilburgers in various ways. Yes, the Wii brand is sort of capital L liberal in a lot of ways, and the public is just sort of slowly beginning to find that out. Yes, um, they were allegedly a- allegedly, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's sort of this soft power thing that we've seen the liberal government cozy itself up to this organization in a myriad of ways, an organization which puts on basically campaign rallies,
0: um, they're educational,
1: rallies, a- educational again. rallies, but it's sure nice when, uh, they buy a t-shirt liberal politicians, Bill Morneau, Justin Trudeau, etc., are featured and promoted by the organization. Um, so, I mean, there's been significant reporting on this by Canaland, which, you know, I have my gripes with, but, I I would start there. Um, But where it is sort of today is the uh, Prime Minister's third um, ethics investigation. Indeed.
0: and He's two for two so far, so...
1: And and the part Canland won't talk about that I think we should is sort of the process that led us to um, all of these stories over the past month. Mm -hmm. Because I think what became immediately apparent was, one, we was a very strange choice to be administering this program. Um, that, you know, others like Volunteer Canada or United Way would have been more natural fits. Um, They perhaps didn't have the capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that the government wasn't administering it to begin with was a bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, The government basically has spent $250 billion, or no, $230 billion in its COVID response. And this was the billion dollars that got stuck going out the door that they needed a third party to really run and that third party happens to be deeply linked with the Trudeau government yeah. on like a very personal level. Yeah. Um, so let's actually talk about uh, what I'd call a thread of quasi misinformation. Um,
0: yeah, sure. And this will bring me to the point I want to make. So that that is in well, terms of all well and good
1: government process and where it was followed, where it wasn't followed, what's being omitted. What people are ignoring. Would you like me to read it yes, so that we please. get fewer
0: attend uh, <laughs> clubs? There's a fair bit of misinformation going around about the Canada Student Service Grant. That's what it is. Thank you. And WE's involvement. Having previously worked in a central agency that was involved in this decision, here are some clarifications in a short government decision-making 101. Just stop me whenever you want, by no. the way. Bye. Every new policy or program needs cabinet approval before it can be announced and implementation can begin. In the case of the CSSG, it was part of a $9 billion package for students that civil servants at ESDC, Employment and Social Development Canada, were tasked with pulling together a memorandum for cabinet, MC, which we've spoken about in a previous episode a long, long time ago, so go ahead and track that down if you want the full story about those, which provides the rationale and recommendations for the policy slash programs to be approved. If Finance Canada had already allocated funds for this policy, then the MC is costed at a high level. MCS are developed by civil servants with strategic input from the minister's office and other government departments so that when the minister responsible goes before the relevant cabinet committee for approval her colleagues are already briefed on what is to come and how it may impact other portfolios the student aid package announced in april was for pandemic release so the cabinet committee that would have discussed it is the ad hoc one for pandemic response chaired by the deputy prime minister uh the prime minister is not on this cabinet committee thus, <laughs> yeah. and th- 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 these are not my views allegedly Thus, the student aid package was discussed at this cabinet committee without the PM, and this committee's recommendation was sent for the Executive Committee of Cabinet's approval, which is usually rubber stamping of the CC's cabinet committee's recommendation, chaired by the Prime Minister. The PM announced the $9 billion program on April 22nd, meaning cabinet approval was obtained by this point. We know, this is long. We know a civil servant from ESDZ approached We Charity shortly thereafter, week of April 26th, to ask if they'd be interested in partnering with the government on the CSSG component of the student aid package worth $912 million. This means that the CC slash cabinet approval was given before we was approached or engaged. After we agreed to jump on board, ESCC would have brought a treasury board. To, I have a point about that to make later. To seek access to the 912 million dollars and to have the contribution agreement approved to establish the transfer payment program for the CSSG, the CA includes. Oversight and performance measures. The PM is not a member of the treasury. This is exhausting. The PM is not a member of the treasury board and thus would not have been involved in the detailed discussions around Wee's involvement that would have taken place at this cabinet committee. So the issue of whether the PM has a conflict with Wee may not even be relevant, since the facts we know point to him not having been involved in the detailed discussions about the CSSG. That is normal, since the PM is not usually involved in the weeds of program design and delivery. We may learn new facts in the ethics commissioner's investigation, but on the face of it, there are no red flags. Despite all the partisan huffing and puffing over this, questions around why we was asked to partner are fair, but linking it to favoritism on the part of the PM demonstrates a lack of understanding of government decision making oh, and boy. how many hands are involved. It yet. Oh boy! The rest is not really relevant. So immediately, well,
1: shortly thereafter, a day later, it came out that the PM himself confessed to have been in the cabinet decision and did not recuse himself from the cabinet decision so that that points to the first error in this thread um (laughs) which is the presumption of which cabinet committee it went to that it Mm. went to and
0: the rigidity of how cabinet committees are discussed here as like a sort of like the rigidity of the entire process exactly is like that's not how this
1: works (laughs) and, and this is something that i would hope um, someone who spent a substantial amount of time in a central agency, in, unless they really had their process blinders on, yes, would be aware of um, that. Wh- number one, where does this idea start? That that's not really in the thread at all. Where does the idea? And, and, yes,
0: and I want to come back for, to that. Yeah.
1: Where does the idea for the CSSG originate? Do you, right.
0: Can I talk about and, that now? And actually? the
1: answer is it originates in the prime minister's office. More specifically, yeah. and this is hypothetically. Allegedly, or, or spe- <laughs> Allegedly. Um, but it's from our prime minister, who above all else yes. sees youth service as perhaps yes so, his overriding priority, and it always the, has been for like his yeah, entire forever. life, like
0: Katimovic, like all this stuff, and also like youth service is like a just it's a cornerstone of like the sort of like civic nationalist liberal thing that like Justin Trudeau is a fantastic example of. So is Pete Buttigieg. So is uh, Emmanuel Macron. All these guys, they love some kind of, like, voluntary youth service thing. It is, like, a bread and butter. It is part of the ideological package. And, yeah, like, to me, like, the the notion of, like, oh, well, we tasked the the public service to look at this, and this is what they came back with. Like, of course, when you design the whole, they're going to come back with the peg you have in mind. Right? Like, that's allegedly my view on it.
1: Well, they they made a recommendation. Also... But, uh, the often, often the, yes. but the they make multiple recommendations? But the
0: parameters for the program were such that, like, oh, this is the perfect fit. Weird. And like, and allegedly. Yeah, there, there
1: are so many problems with this. To to take the youth service point just a little bit further, right? What what evidence do we have for this? The prime minister's book about him or his autobiography, written by uh, John Kay. <laughs> very amusingly, <laughs> yes. <autobiography> hindsight, <laughs> very funny. Written by John K. Um, youth service composes about fifty percent of it. Yeah. The PM talks, uh, I mean, he sees his role as a teacher, as a camp counselor, as all all of his various vocations, as part of this youth service mandate. He made himself uh, the minister minister of youth until this most recent cabinet shutdown. Yeah, and this is the thing is that... This is his thing above everything (laughs) else. When you talk to liberals about the camping grant that was
0: proposed as part of the... (laughs) The last platform, As part of the
1: last platform... No one was like, oh yeah, that was the wonks at Finance Canada that came up with that one. No, no. it was It's a guy who
0: loves canoe trips. This is
1: yeah. no, this is the PM's personal intervention on the platform. Yes. This is where he was he was making his point. Yes. Which is perhaps why it was such a bad policy. Um and the exact same fingerprints can sort of be seen all over this file. Yes. I mean, and then you take the next oh. step and you realize that. Justin Trudeau has a personal, long-running relationship with the Kielbergers. Yes. And those Allegedly. two, those two pieces
0: of the puzzle just go together yes. so obviously and so well. Like, can I just go off a little bit more about the whole Youth Service thing? Is that like it's such a like the children are our future emptiness of ideas. Like, that's all you got, really? Children of the future? It, it's just basic like that and the camping thing, when you add them together, is a desire for everyone to be upper middle class yes like that's what it's like if everyone had a nice volunteerism opportunity and also like went camping and like, they would all I, appreciate would, our vast yeah, wide country yeah and it's just like and, it's just such fucking bullshit and like, environmentalism I, and liberal values this is will like, follow yeah this is exactly the kind of like just like empty platitudinous it, it's not cynical but it might as well be in that it's so devoid of any actual like Appraisal of society And like the role of the individual in it That it's just like it just makes me sick Frankly like it just pisses me off so much Sorry I just no, i hate I, this I, so much I, It I, really makes me it's just the imposition Of this guy's fucking upbringing On the rest of the goddamn country Is so fucking galling <laughs> Ugh.
1: Um. So wait To get back
0: to the process. Just if everyone's dad was prime minister there'd be no fucking problems Wouldn't there yeah it'd be great
1: to go back to the process slightly. So I, I think we've established to the best of our ability. I, I think perhaps the ethics commissioner will establish it more um, because I think he'll look into the relationship for Trudeau and the Gilbert. once again we get to decide who is a friend and who isn't. Uh, basically, yes. I, I think that will be a substantial part of his investigation, or that may be a substantial part yes. of his investigation.
0: And, and be assured that in the when the eventual report comes out, that we will do a fulsome, fulsome episode about it with Papers Mario Three, uh, just in time for the Origami. <laughs> pa- Origami, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um,
1: so you, you take that, and then you, you. So you ignore the point of origination of this policy, which for anyone watching the federal government these days, it's pretty clear PMO is the one pumping out policy, probably in lockstep with finance barely being able to keep up how they're going to start, you know, penning this. And then the line department's getting called up as need be to deliver the policy where gaps are seen by sort of PMO. Yeah. All of the, during this COVID period, all of the usual policy development processes are completely out the window. It is all being top-down driven as a package based on what Likely the prime minister's office is hearing, yeah, uh, as well as you know, uh, as well as the line departments, but less so the line departments because we're trying to move in a matter of days and weeks, and not in a period of months and years. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it, it is perfectly sensible for the government to sort of say, "Snap into emergency mode. Everything's coming from the top. Here's here's what we're going to do." Yeah, um, so we're forgetting that that's happening as well, and we're saying, mm-hmm. "Oh." What, what, what's imposed in the process she's described is sort of the holistic policy process where things have trickled up from the bottom. A policy analyst has thrown together this briefing note.
0: Yeah. It's eventually transformed the, the its that, way yeah.
1: through the process to become a memorandum to cabinet. The with idea that a political will minister behind it.
0: Isn't intimately involved with everything that goes to the cabinet committee on the pandemic is just laughable. It's laughable. Ha ha.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the wrong presumptions in there, which was immediately rebutted, although I believe she says that uh, it is of no consequence, um, is which cabinet committee things are going to. Yes. Um, the executive committee of cabinet or sort of full cab or P&P, as we would have called it back in the day. Um was, Priorities and planning. For the yes. Power. Yes. And I don't. I, I don't know it, if they still have res, results and delivery. Was yes, I think it's results and delivery. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. Anyway, some some sort of ad hoc full cab or or something along those lines, um, where the prime minister wasn't doing this. What else? My God. What else was he doing? <laughs> um, my impression of it is that the committee that she cited is more the in the weeds committee, not the sort of macro policy committee. It's the uh, how do we get personal protective equipment to the places we need. Yeah. Um, So some process points there. And then the other one is sort of the role of PMO and PCO, uh, so the prime minister's office and privy council's office in in shepherding along all of these policies that are being driven from the top down. So it is not this bottom up process. It is PCO calling these analysts every day for updates on how these things are going, editing the documents, them talking with PMO about how those things are going, PMO weighing into the process and so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that PMO and PCO are basically cut out of this entire process makes it his standard. On,
0: on a personal priority of the Prime Minister that he has like expressly discussed for most of his career. Yes, makes it an
1: incredibly <laughs> dishonest presentation of yes. the fact. But what is, what is nice and what's convenient to do is to provide a textbook idea of how policies are presented using sort of the resources online of like the memorandum to cabinet yeah. process online devoid, so just of, devoid of any analysis or sort of institutional knowledge of how these things actually play out in practice it's yeah, like, how does the bill become a law let me show you how the textbook works I'm just a bill <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you see the bill is drafted by the Department of Justice and uh, therefore none of the other ministers really weigh in on it like uh, no yeah. Th- this is not how any of this works in practice
0: anyway we'd love to see it It's all good stuff, and uh, just brutal. Just everything that we just said, all of it, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep in mind. Uh, So,
1: just something to look forward to. um, As on on our closing note, the the latest developments, or sort of the most substantial developments, I think, will come from the what committee is it? Is it Finance Committee? Finna, finna. um, Where finna get some documents? There were two motions passed, one by the NDP and one by the Conservatives. Yeah. The NDP motion was for records and papers, or whatever they call it. Getting the docs. Was thirty. No, it's days. not a
0: motion. Not a motion for the production of papers. That's it quite was quite a different. A, thing. Yeah, which yeah. is it was, it was much more serious. Oh, and they're so stupid too. Yes. It's basically yeah. No, we'll, we'll get into that at a different time. So they, they're it, basically useless. That's why you don't see them.
1: But a humble request. Yes. For the government to provide all their papers in relation to this, so that'll be very interesting to see.
0: Indeed, and I, I anticipate already that there will be a big piss up over redactions and yes. parliamentary privilege.
1: This happened uh, to a lesser extent in the hess committee yes. around the COVID the HESA documents. Decided
0: to let sleeping dog's line
1: on that one um so we will see in that instance the department improperly redacted the documents before before providing them to parliament yes uh whereas well, it the is expressly the law, clerk, the law clerk of parliament who yeah. should be and perhaps not, in consultation and not, for the standard,
0: but, and not for the standard sort of ati redactions yes. or like business sensitivity it was strictly Huffman, privacy national security that kind of thing. Um, so we will see what happens there, but I suspect it'll be
1: interesting. So that's one half of it. The other half of it is four meetings of no less than three hours, if I recall. Yes, you do recall. Um, by the conservatives to have various witnesses appear, testify before the committee, including um, the clerk of the Privy Council, um, Bardish Chegger, who is the minister of youth, uh, Volunteer Canada, which is an organization that has been put out as perhaps a, uh, a likely candidate for administering the program, although the the CEO of Volunteer Canada has stated a policy difference on paying volunteers. Um, Um, So that's perhaps why they're tapped out. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to
0: say. Can I make a just quick note about the policy writ large? And that's all, folks. (laughs) Just that, like, when we talk about, you know, options that were on the table, they, they could have very well just said, hey, if you're getting the CESB or CERB as a young person, maybe consider doing some volunteering and like maybe maybe they even do the like the i want to help portal you know a a personal
1: responsibility approach to things if you will perhaps
0: and then it's just it would have saved them this whole thing it's just like they wouldn't like it's just like the money still would have gotten out the door people still got what they needed and they just would have avoided this big like overreach that just got them nothing but grief
1: anyway but they would not have inspired many young Canadians to take up youth service and still values in them themselves and join the Liberal Party. I,
0: You know, as was Global Shapers, Banform, all the... Yeah.
1: <laughs> the usual suspects.
0: Yeah. Oh, very good. I think we'll call it there for, for the evening. Uh, thanks again to everyone who, who's listened to the episode. Uh, it is our pleasure to we'll be doing these once again semi-regularly, as, as things permit. Um, you can of course uh follow us at tour pants pod for all of our latest musings and dunks and uh, if you care to leave us a review on your platform of choice especially especially the itunes store uh because that is where podcasts live and die uh it would be greatly appreciated especially if it's five stars in fact uh if you want to leave us a three-star review the podcast is called the Strategists. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but for five star reviews called the boys in short pants <laughs> and you can find us wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Uh, that will be it for us. Thank you once again and good night. Bye.